Bible is life, is the life-giving breath of God. The Bible is the library of the Holy Spirit, where we learn the true religion and how to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The Bible contains the credenda, the things which we must believe. And the Bible contains the agenda, the things which we must practice. And by this word, we have everlasting life. But the opposite holds true. And the word of life may be so distorted from the life of the word that it becomes the food of death. And so when Satan borrows sense to speak one word, we Christians need to borrow God's word and speak the contrary. That is, our minds have to be consumed with the word and our hearts filled with its truth. We must be devoted to God's word. Scripture needs to have priority in your life. That's the main idea of my sermon this morning. The Bible needs to have priority in your life. The sacred Scripture You must have, must have that priority. As much as the priority we find in chapter 15. Verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. You see, Yahweh had graced Saul to be his king that he might obey God's word. That's what the verb listen means. It means to hear, to understand, to know and follow God's word. Israel's king had to submit to all of God's word. Sola Scriptura mattered to God. Sola Scriptura matters to chapter 15. It matters to us. So this chapter serves as an object lesson of how seriously God takes his word. And our devotion to God's word is of utmost importance. We must trust God's word or else. And this chapter is mostly focused on the or else. It's an or else chapter. Focus on God's word. Make it a priority or else. You see, there are grave consequences in forsaking and mishandling God's word. You as a Christian have been graced by God to follow his word. You've been graced by God to know, to have the word of God, to believe the word of God, trust and follow it. Listen to the word. And we have to trust this word even when the Bible offends our sensibilities. The Bible offends our sensibilities. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, y'all all know Lord of hosts means Lord of battle, and war was on his mind. I have noted what Amalek did, Amalek did to Israel in imposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. And Torah, in Torah, Yahweh had stated that he would completely blot out the memory of Amalek, Amalek from under Israel heaven. God had promised to deliver, to defeat and destroy these people 
and that day has come. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Devote to destruction. That is what we call harem warfare. In harem warfare, everything that God has banned must be destroyed. When God bans a people, when God puts his ban on a people, nothing but complete destruction. Think Jericho. Jericho was under the ban of the Lord. This is holy warfare. Harem is holy warfare. Everything, including the inhabitants of the band, were completely unclean and unholy. Everything under the band was unclean and unholy. And God's people are holy. God's people are clean. So we can have nothing to do with those who are under the ban. We cannot profit from them. We must not be even amongst them. For they are devoted to destruction. Verse 3 continues to say, devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now this Christian is a very hard word, is it not? Hard to hear? It is a hard word. It's a very hard word. And some will say of this word that this is ethnic cleansing. And ethnic cleansing, we know, is immoral. So this is an immoral text. Therefore, it needs to be canceled. And God needs to be canceled forever writing this word. But no, this is God's word. This is true. And so we need to deal with this word of God in a very responsible way. And dare may I say that we, make, we must come to praise God even in this verse. Because everything God does, everything God has ever done is worthy of our praise. You see, friends, God is holy. And God hates evil with pure vengeance. And so harem warfare is not ethnic cleansing, it is sin cleansing. We see in verse 18, he says, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners. It's not about ethnicity, it's about sin. God hates sin. Sin cleansing. And God's word is true. But one thing you must realize about God's word is God's word is true, but God's word isn't necessarily always nice. I would argue that Christianity is actually not a nice religion. It's actually not even a biblical virtue. I looked up the word nice in Webster's, and the definition of nice is to be agreeable or to be acceptable. To be nice is someone who's agreeable and acceptable. Think about Jesus. Was Jesus acceptable when he made a whip and beat the religious leaders in Israel? Was Paul agreeable when he called the Jews dogs and Hagar's children? And will Jesus be pleasant when he comes again to judge the living and the dead? 
God's vengeance should not be repudiated, debunked, or ignored. It should be praised. And God's vengeance is just. Amalek attacked Israel for no reason. When Israel was on their journey on the Exodus, leaving Egypt, Amalek came out and destroyed and sought and attacked Israel for no reason. And in the Abrahamic promise, God promised to bless those who bless his people and to curse those who cursed his people. Amalek sought to curse God's people, so God devoted them to destruction. He put them under the ban. Devoted to destruction. But isn't it true, Christian, that we are all devoted to destruction? Isn't it true that we are all under the ban? Dead in our trespasses and sins, cursed by the law of God, But here's where the band and the devotion, here's where we find where God is praised in the cross. You see, in the cross of Christ, Jesus was devoted to destruction. By his own devotion, his own willingness to die was cursed on the cross. That is written, cursed be everyone who is hung on a tree. And Christ became a curse. Christ was lifted up to lift the ban from us who believe, to be delivered from destruction. The place of fear to have hope. The cross isn't nice, but it's good. You see, there's mercy in the ban. In harem, God saves his people. God protects and defends his loved ones. And God doesn't forget how his enemies have hated, trampled, and crushed his people. God notes all those who seek to put down, strangle, oppress, and overthrow his church. And if he didn't seek vengeance, if God didn't seek vengeance, where would our deliverance be found? You see, God seeks vengeance and delivers. The gospel pronounces salvation and damnation. How did God save Israel, excuse me, how did God save Adam and Eve from their shame? Once they sinned, they felt that shame. And how did God cover that shame? He killed something. He put something to death that he might deliver Adam and Eve from their sin and their shame. How did God deliver Israel from Egypt? Through the plagues that brought the curse and damnation and the death of the firstborn of all of Egypt. And then Pharaoh in the Red Sea, God delivered his people from destroying. God delivered Noah and his family, righteous Noah, righteous Noah and his family by condemning the earth. And on the cross, Christ condemned that we might be saved. And so Isaiah proclaims salvation as the year of the Lord's favor in the day of vengeance to comfort all who mourn. In the gospel, God's people enjoy his favor while his enemies receive vengeance. And we may not like the idea of vengeance as first world Christians. We're not persecuted. But the church in chains and the church martyred for her faith It is her prayer. 
It's the bedrock of the church persecuted prayer. Listen to Revelation 6, 9. Revelation says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls, who have, the souls of those who had been slain. That is the persecuted Christians, the martyred Christians. They've been slain for the word of God and for the witness they, born, they had borne. And they cried out, all these martyred Christians, crying out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood? on those who dwell on the earth. You see, friends, those who attack Christ's church are in for an awakening. One commentator, one commentator said it best. He says, I quote, some folks put beware of dog signs on their houses or fences. But the sign on Yahweh's kingdom reads, beware of flock. Beware of flock. And rulers and nations who read it should shudder, especially if they have touched and butchered the sheep of his hand. You see, friends, we've been marked by the blood of the Passover lamb, and we are secure in Christ. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love darkness more than the light because their works were evil. It is a difficult text, but God's word is true and he's just. And we do find his grace, his mercy, even here. And before I move on from this text, I want to answer one last question. Should Christians, should we as Christians pack, practice harem today? Are we to devote to destruction today? And the answer is yes. Paul says we are to devote to destruction all of our sins. We are to be killing off our sin completely. And this is why nice is not a biblical virtue, because nice is a passive virtue. Nice doesn't really do anything. He's so nice to be around. Isn't he nice? He's just nice. It's not really active. It's not really accomplishing anything. But when you look at the biblical virtues, goodness and faithfulness, kindness, love, those are all active. Those are calling you to be good, to put away your sin. They're calling you to self-sacrifice and to service and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we should show goodwill. We should show goodwill to all men, and we show goodwill to all men in hopes that we can share the good news to all who ask of the hope that lies within us. And Paul also practiced harem against false teachers. And Paul has called the church to fight the good fight of our faith, yet our weapons are not weapons of this world. The weapons for the church is the word, the word of God in prayer. And sometimes we have to be good and destroy false teaching. Sometimes we have to be good and destroy false teaching. We can't always be nice because lives are at stake. 
And we are the aroma of Christ to those who are perishing, a fragrance from death to death, but to those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. You see, friends, it might not be nice to show someone their sins and misery. It might not be nice to show someone their sins and misery, but when you do it, when you show someone their sins and misery that you might show them how they are delivered, well, that's good. And that's kind. And that's who we are called to be. Now Saul summoned Israel and marched against Amalek. He then spared the Kenites because they blessed God's people. It says, verse 6, then Saul said to the Kenites, go depart. He says, get away. Get away so I don't destroy you because you showed kindness to us. And here is Saul fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant. The Kenites blessed Israel, so God is blessing the Kenites, where Amalek and the Amalekites cursed Israel, and now they're facing the curse of God. And so he comes and he strikes. Verse 7, it says, he, and Saul defeated the Amalekites. Verse 8, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. And notice how the narrator explains how he disobeyed God twice. But Saul and the people, verse 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag. That's the writer's say, way of saying, look at what Saul has done. He's disobeyed the Lord. He spared Agag. Saul was nice to Agag. And Saul was here selective in obeying God's word. He was following God's word until it didn't suit his own self-interest. He did the parts of God's word that he liked, but he, didn't, he, he ignored the parts he didn't like. He, 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 went along, he went along with the parts he liked. Oh, I like these parts. I don't like this part. This part doesn't really affect me. It's not good for my self-interests. And so it said the people, verse 9, and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the best, and the oxen and the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good. They kept all that was good because it was good for them. And they would not utterly destroy them except for the despised and worthless things they devoted to destruction. The people followed and fattened themselves on all that was unholy. And these things, even though they were good and fattened sheep and all of the like, they were devoted to destruction. And now their leader has shown them that it's okay to neglect God's word when it doesn't suit your self-interests. It's okay to follow God's word until you don't like parts of God's word, and then it's okay to ignore. Do we ever do that in the church? You see, if God's word doesn't suit your taste and sensibilities, it's time for you to change your worldview. We don't conform God to our likeness and God to our image. We conform our knowledge and our lives to the word of God, or else. Verse 10, and the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. 
And Yahweh's upset here because Saul didn't follow his word. And Samuel is upset as well. And Samuel grieved. And Samuel was angry. And Samuel cried out to the Lord all night. And he woke up the morning. Verse 12, Samuel rose early to meet Saul. He's coming to meet Saul. He's coming in judgment. And it just so happened Saul wasn't at Carmel as he was supposed to be. And behold, he set up a monument. The people said, hey, he set up a monument for himself. Look at that. Saul's memorialized his own disobedience. <laughs> it's all about Saul. And he turned, he passed on, and he went to Gilgal. And he, Samuel rose, and Samuel followed him. And verse 13, and Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to Samuel, Blessed be the Lord, I perform the commandment of the Lord. I followed the commandment of the Lord. And now here Saul is using religion to boast of his own obedience. But Samuel wasn't hearing it. And Samuel said, What is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And now Sam, Saul begins the blame, blame game. Saul said, They have brought them. Oh, that's not me. That was the people. They brought them in, the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, the God. And the rest they devoted to destruction. I love what he's saying here. He's saying, we've disobeyed God's word. Yes, I know. But we've disobeyed God's word that we might worship God. That's literally what he's saying here. We disobeyed the word that we might worship God. You get it? But Saul, Samuel wasn't getting it. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I like this. He's like, stop. It's kind of like when your children, you know, are trying to get out of trouble. You ever heard your children get out of trouble and they tell this long fib and it goes on and you're finally like, stop. And that's enough. And you bring the boom. <laughs> that's Saul here. Samuel here. Stop. Stop what you are doing. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. And Saul said, speak. And then Saul, Samuel reminds Saul of his place, verse 17. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And hasn't the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And Samuel is basically saying to Saul, Saul, God did not make you king because you are so awesome. God made you king because he is awesome, and you must glorify the Lord. You must obey him, not the people. You obey the word of the Lord. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them till they are consumed. Obey the word of the Lord. God commanded Saul to cleanse the land of sin, and instead of destroying wickedness, Saul increased it. Why then, verse 19, why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil? Why did you ignore the parts you didn't like? And why did you pounce on the spoils, fattening yourselves? with what is evil in the sight of the Lord. You see, friends, disobedience to God's law in part is disobedience to the whole. You see, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul believed that partial obedience was okay. Look what he argues for in verse 20. And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed. I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me. 
I have obeyed, but not perfectly. I brought back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. You see, Saul believes here in this text that partial obedience is enough. That you don't have to fully obey the word of the Lord. You can obey most of it, and that's good. But partial partial obedience, according to God's word, is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience. And so Samuel said, verse 22, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and listen to that, to listen than the fat of rams. You see, Torah demands sacrifice. Sacrifice is worship. But this worship has to be in obedience to God's word alone. And worship is never a substitute for obedience. That's what Samuel is saying here. Samuel is saying that worship is never a substitute to obedience. But friends, obedience is worship. God commands And as God commands, we must be fully obedient. That's why we never ask as Christians, what may we do? We don't look to God's word and say, what may we do? Well, here's what we're not supposed to do, so I can do anything else. That leads to all kinds of trouble. We don't ask God's word, what may I do? We ask God's word, what must I do? And I do that. We do that alone. In biblical worship, biblical Christianity leaves no room for self-interest. In failure to follow God's word, failure to sola scriptura is arrogance, insubordination, and idolatry. Verse 23, for rebellion, he says, is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. What Samuel is saying here, Samuel is saying failure to do God's word alone is in the same category as pagan idolatry. Partial obedience is the same category as pagan idolatry. When I was in college, I wanted to be a missionary. And talking to all these missionary agencies. And, but I also wanted to go to seminary. I wanted to go on to grad school. So I, I graduated college and I was ready. I wanted to go. I, I, I didn't feel I was ready to be a missionary quite yet. I wasn't quite equipped. But all of the missionary agencies to the man said, no, you're good. You're good where you are. You know enough. You see, the people we're sending you to, they don't know anything. So the knowledge you have is enough. All you need to know is Jesus, and that's enough. And I thought, that's very pious. It sounds very pious. Jesus is enough. But something didn't sit right with me. And then I realized, this isn't piety. This is presumption. This is telling God what's enough in a minister. This is God saying, this is what he will accept. 
When God's word is so clear that we are to make disciples of all nations, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That the church is to set apart men and test them and train them for the work of the ministry. That they might rightly handle God's word. That they might be stuck to the pattern of sound doctrine and not deviate, that they would lead the church in the whole counsel of God, that the church would be equipped by every word of the Lord or else. We need every word of the Lord or else. So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, verse 24, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. It kind of sounds like he's repenting here, right? He's actually confessing his sin. He feared the people. Check. Yes, he did. He failed to obey God's voice by obeying a voice of the people. So it seems like true repentance. And, and now he wants to worship the Lord. Verse 34, uh, 25. Now, therefore, pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. It seems genuine. But verse 26, Samuel wouldn't have it. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you. Because the sin was so grave, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. You see, Saul had disobeyed the Lord in a matter of utmost importance, and the Lord has rejected this king. Then you want to highlight this next verse, or these next few verses. And Saul turned away. And Samuel seized his skirt and his robe, and he tore it. And Samuel said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from this day from you. And here's what you want to underline. And has given it to a neighbor of yours. And he's better than you. And he's also the glory of Israel. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret. For he is not a man that should have regret. This glory of Israel, this man that is better than Saul, we know that it, that is ultimately our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The glory of Jesus is the true Israel of God. Jesus is the true Israel of God who obeyed God's word perfectly. Obeyed God's perf word perfectly, but died on the cross as if a sinner. Died as if a sinner so that in Christ we might not have any regret. For if you believe in Christ, your sins have been washed away by the blood of his righteousness as far as the east is from the west, and you bear them no more. And you are the righteousness of God. You are the glory of God. Though you're a sinner, and though you continue to sin your whole life long, God justifies, declares you righteous in Christ. And so here we find the life of the word and we follow it so closely because this word leads us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 30, and then Saul says, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders. And so really, really we get to see Saul's real motivation here. He didn't really want to go worship the Lord. He wanted to go to worship that he might be honored. He wanted to be honored in worship. This is politics. Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. You see, he wanted to be pleased in worship. This isn't true repentance. He didn't really want to give God the glory and the obedience due his name. 
But interestingly, Samuel acquiesces, verse 31. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. So Saul, Samuel acquiesces, but it's not because of Saul's pity or Saul's asking. It's because Samuel wants to obey the Lord. He says, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag is like, oh, it's all good. Surely the bitterness of death, it's all gone. I'm going to be okay. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among the women. And Samuel, frail old Samuel, hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. That is, Samuel returned with Saul because Samuel needed Israel needed to obey the Lord. And Samuel obeys the Lord, and he finishes harem. And he devotes to destruction all that is under God's ban. He finished harem. And then verse 34, probably the saddest moment in Saul's life. Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. That is, Saul was now without the Lord's prophet. He's now without the word of the Lord. The greatest tragedy of all, Saul lost access to God's word. And this danger of losing access to God's word, this or else, obedience and trust in God's word, listen or else, is ours as well. Listen to Mark chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus said, I said to you, Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure that you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And Jesus is saying here, we must trust the word, for without it there is nothing else but the ban. When the word speaks, we listen. When the word speaks, we listen. And when silent, we must be silent. And when the word is silent, let the church be your text. And hear her multitude of counselors, the wisdom and prudence. And when the scripture is silent, when the church is silent, remain silent. Be patient and wait for the Lord. And when you doubt, turn to the Christ of Scripture. Who will help your unbelief. And when you're weak, trust that Christ will not break a bruised reed. He will not quench a faintly burning wick. His grace is greater than all your sins. His grace is greater than your weakness. He will lead you in the truth. That is, he will lead you by every word of the Lord. It is the life-giving breath of God. And Jesus says it's our daily bread. So let the Bible have priority in your life. Dare I say, wake up with God's word. Go to sleep with God's word. And let its words of light cover your life and home. And may this word lead you to Jesus Christ, our only comfort in life and in death. Amen.
At Covenant Reformed Church in Missoula, Montana, we sincerely believe God's Word and faithfully teach it. We invite you to worship with us on Sundays. For more information, please visit MissoulaURC.com. That's MissoulaURC.com.